October is Reformation Month, and I was, I was really geared to preach last Sunday. And uh, I still came here, and good thing, because there was a few people didn't get the memo. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, it's just raining. Our, our little friend from Brazil, I don't think she's here this morning, is she? She, she came in, and I said, uh, no iglesia, you know, and she like, it's, it's, I didn't understand what she was saying, but I could read her face. It's just raining. <laughs> Y'all cancel church. In Brazil, we don't cancel church for rain. You know, it's like, well, we don't either, you know. So, but uh, ended up having to take her home because her husband that dropped her off turned his phone off. So <laughs> I had to give her a ride home. But uh, October the 31st, we have Fall Festival. We usually know that day as Halloween. You know, I never heard of it being referred to as All Saints Day. Did you growing up? I didn't hear it as All Saints Day. And our costuming was like putting on our parents' oversized clothes and putting smut on our face and going to a particular subdivision in Childersburg because we lived in the country, so you'd probably hit four houses in about a mile. So we went and raided Childersburg subdivisions. So people would look at us as, are you children from around here? And we said, we're from over there, <laughs> pointed toward Harpersville. But we never heard that. Reformation Day, um, All Saints Day, October 31st, 1517. This is the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther, a Catholic monk, parish pastor, took exception to the point of confronting the practices of the Pope and had 95 objections to what he saw happening in his church the Roman Catholic Church. He was not trying to get out. He was trying to make changes. He was trying to provoke changes. And I, I put a definition about what Reformation was, but you have to look up the verb to really get what Reformation was all about. If you Google reform, the first thing that pops up is definition at 98 million hits. You know what second? Take a guess. You're from Alabama. Reform Alabama is number two on the list <laughs> with 52 million hits. Yes, we made the list. Reform, Reform Alabama made the list in Google. 52 million people. I know what happens. They try to look at the definition and they see there's actually a town... Name that, so i got to check that out. <laughs> 52 million hits. But here's what the word reform means. It means to make changes in order to improve it. So you've probably been a reformer at some point in your life. You know, January is Reformation Month for a lot of people because they're going to improve their health. They're going to go and join up and exercise and eat right and do right. It means to make changes, but it's not just changes. It is in order to improve whether it's a social structure, political structure, economic structure. It actually means to improve in order to change, to get something back to its original design or purpose. And that's what the church should be about, is getting back to the original design or purpose. 
Anybody calling for reform or change for the better is really a voice of reformation. The church was birthed out of the organic effect of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I chose that word because it's not the information that changes a person's life. It is the life in that gospel. The gospel is the power of God. It's not the words that are the power of God. It's the message that Christ came to make your life better. Christ came to redeem your life. He came to break off the things that are in your life. We may not look at Jesus as a reformer, but when you take the definition that he came to invoke change for the better, you have to say he's a reformer. He meets that definition. He's prophet, priest, and king. Three unique offices in the Bible. He's the only one to ever fulfill all three of those offices. He's prophet, he's priest, he's king. Now, I think when you look at all the prophets in the Bible, they're all reformers. Really. Their message was to a people that was in one place and God wanted them to elevate to a different place, a better place, a place that God wanted for them. Think about the first time Jesus had a chance to preach as the prophet in the office of prophet in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. He stood up and unrolled a scroll of a previous prophet 900 years prior to him, Isaiah. And he unrolled that scroll almost to the end of it, which was a long ways to get there. And what he read was these words. You find it in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for that cloak of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. He came to change the way things were. He came to address a system that showed oppression. When you read all of those things in Isaiah 61, he came to give them what people needed, maybe not what they wanted to hear, but what they needed, they needed deliverance, they needed freedom, they needed peace, joy, encouragement, security. Everything he came to do was to take people from one place of heaviness, of hurt or wrong, and move them into what he can do in their lives. The system was in place that had become a system of power and authority by those who were wealthy. God gave a system of worship to Moses, to a high priest, into a priestly function, and what happened in Jesus' day, all of that was politicized. All of that became like just a system of control. And Jesus stepped into that system, and nothing points us to what happened there better than John 3. Now, I'm going to jump around, so keep your Bibles handy, okay? The whole encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus, which was initiated by Nicodemus, 
Nicodemus came to him seeing something was different about this Jesus of Nazareth. Here's a man that was thoroughly entrenched in the system that Jesus came to confront and to change. And he looks at this man, a teacher, a leader, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have an internal change in your life. The system around you is not how you get to God. God wants to know you internally, not externally. And he was telling Nicodemus, he was introducing his message, his message of reform, that the system you're in, Nicodemus, is obstructing the purpose of God, not advancing it. And when you look, and he stepped away from that, and and mind you, Nicodemus came there in the secrecy of night. It's kind of like orthopedic surgeons going in the back door to a chiropractor. You know, they they don't want people to see that they may not have the answers to everything. And here's Nicodemus. He knows there's something about Jesus. And Christ's message continues to be a message of change. And, you know, Jesus didn't uh, didn't campaign for high office. He didn't come to run politics because politics does not change a person's heart. When Mayor Maddox approached some of us pastors years ago and said, we have a problem, we have a homicide rate that's out of control, we got to do something. We can put a precinct in every neighborhood in this city, but we cannot change the hearts of people in those communities. Only the gospel can do that, and that's why we need you. And he pointed that and says, all of you need to take an area that we have these problems and minister and pray, and so ours is Forrester Gardens. We've been down there for years. That's our mayor understanding that politics does not have the answers to the conflict in people's lives. So what Jesus was really saying in Matthew, in uh, Isaiah 61, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It means change. Change how you're going. Change the direction you're going. I wish we had some kind of self-diagnosis that we could do to see where we're at. What's my pattern? My system of growth, my interaction with God, how does that affect my life, my family, my friends, my work? So I'm going to take you back to Reformation, 500th anniversary of Martin Luther, taking that dangerous stand. (laughs) Most people leading up to what he did did not see their next birthday. Savonarola, a, a Spanish monk that was in the same time frame of Luther was complaining about some of the same things Luther was complaining about and making it public, he was excommunicated and the following year he was arrested and he was hung with two other friars that were with him. And they burned their bodies so that nobody would make anything to do about it. This was just a few years before Martin Luther decided that he would put it in print and pass it out. So, so why didn't Martin, Martin Luther get killed? Well, he helped some local authorities. He had some local authorities that liked him and gave him security. That was 1517. If you want to jot some interesting things down here. Do you, how many of you remember a couple from Florida that was in um, uh, theatrical presentations doing Martin Luther, uh, a presentation of Martin Luther and his wife? you remember that? Well, here's some things about 
1517, he posted those 95 theses. Less than four years later, he was excommunicated in 1521. Now, what excommunicated meant in that day and time is that he was no longer saved. <laughs> he was heading to hell because the church said he was. When they excommunicated people, they put a miter on their head many times and cursed them to hell because the church was the dispenser of grace. And when the church excommunicated, they took grace away from you. You couldn't have grace. You couldn't have the sacrament. You were now no longer a child of God. This was the control they had on people. So in 21, 15, 21, he is excommunicated. Now, now, there's a little bit of years, but I like this. I really like what I'm about to tell you. So Martin Luther said, you excommunicate me, I'm getting married. <laughs> I'll show y'all. All right, I'm going to have a good life, thanks to you. Now, he did, I don't think he said it that way, but he did get married about four years later, in 1525, at the age of 42, and his wife was 26, Katharina von Bora. Don't you like that name? Katharina. Katharina now has an interesting story. She was a nun in a convent that was about the same time Luther was having this havoc wreaked upon him by the church. She decided she didn't want to be a nun anymore, so she escaped from the convent. She escaped because you're not supposed to do that. And somebody provided hiding for her in Wittenberg. How about that? The very city that Martin Luther lived in. So guess who he met? Katharina. They got married. They had six kids. Life is good. <laughs> Life is good. <laughs> now, historians say, now, now listen, this is, I'm reading stuff on the Reformation because I just love this stuff. Because it's the church trying to suffocate something God is doing. <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't stop it. They, they would try over here and they'd break out over here. And they'd try over here and they'd break out over here. This thing was on. And Martin Luther was one of the key people. He wasn't the only person. There was other people. John Calvin, who was not a monk, he was a lawyer, studying Scripture. The more they got into Scripture, they realized that the church wasn't being honest with them. Because now they had the scripture and they was going through this. Martin Luther, he uh, was not a very good financial manager. So the historian said that Katharina was the brains. That happens a lot in marriage sometimes. The woman is the brains. I was waiting for a lady to say amen. You did good. You, you, did, you didn't miss your moment. <laughs> Very good. But she managed the finances. She ran the house. Now, he died at the age of 62, and, and she outlived that time by six years. But it enabled, listen, she had as much a role in what he did after he was excommunicated. Now, they started having meetings with people who shared their common faith. It wasn't that he was not going to be a part of a community of faith. There was this these churches was being birthed. They were being birthed by the Reformation. And, 
And it was kind of like an offshoot of Catholicism, but not entirely, because the changes that he felt like the church should make, they made. How they would do things, that they just wouldn't feed, uh, wouldn't just give the wafer to the people who are in the sacraments, but they would give the juice. And in Catholicism, they would not give them the juice because they would consider that the blood of Jesus. They'd only give the wafer, and only the priests could drink the juice. Well, you made a point. Some of them couldn't throw away the, the blood of Jesus, so they would drink what was left. And it wasn't grape juice. It wasn't. But here's Martin Luther. He's, he's in this community of faith that shares his common core, and he goes on and writes books, writes commentaries, translates the entire Bible into German. The New Testament and then the Old Testament, the entire Bible. We're not talking about with a word processor. We're talking about parchment and an inkwell. That he's writing, he's translating, he's, he's a linguist, he knows Latin, he knows all of the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, and, and his wife manages the house while he has this writing. He even wrote hymns. You've probably heard of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he was, he was really, he would love our praise team. Maybe not the music we, we do, but he would... He, was, he just loved worship. He loved singing. And he told people this. Those who sing, those who sing, those who worship usually pray twice as much. Because someone who knows how to worship knows how to talk with God. That was Martin Luther. And it allowed Luther to have this profound impact. In fact, I didn't plan on sharing this, but I keep my favorite Bible with me here that uh, I want to read you something from it. This is a classic devotional Bible. And uh, the interesting thing about Luther is in his commentary on Romans, he wrote a, a, a prelude to it, an overview. And, and John Wesley was sitting in a service during, I think it was a Wednesday night service on Aldersgate Street. And he heard someone reading 200 years before what Martin Luther had written in his commentary on Romans and the thought and the revelation that you're saved not by works but by faith. John Wesley got saved sitting in that service. He had already been a missionary to Georgia with the Church of England. But he was lost. And sitting in that service, what Luther said about Romans gripped his heart. And he said, I had this strange sense. We know what it is, it's being born again. Come over him, and they could not control that man after that. <laughs> they wouldn't let him preach in any of the Church of England's congregations. But he traveled an estimate of 250,000 miles on horseback throughout the country of England, preached over 42,000 sermons. And I think... He and his wife had like 16 children. So he, he didn't, he, he believed in, he was a pro-lifer. He, he believed in pro-life. <laughs> I, I don't want to miss these figures, okay? He wrote 233 books 
It included educational, translations, histories, Bible commentaries, an English dictionary, 23 collections of hymns, a medical handbook, a primitive uh, physics book, 32 editions of that alone. And by his own admission, this is what he said. When I read this, I said, this fits my message. By his own admission, Wesley wanted to reform England. He wanted to change England, but he was not changing it by political action. He was changing it by preaching. But he knew that preaching had somehow had to intersect what was going on in England. And his last letter, his last act of his life was the dictation of a letter to William Wilberforce to encourage him in the parliament to fight against slavery. And Wilberforce, along with John Newton, did this strategic thing within the Parliament of England without the pro-slavery people realizing it, and they passed legislation that, in essence, stopped slavery in England. Maybe Wesley didn't live to see the reform he wanted, but his seeds and the water he plant and the water he planted poured over those seeds help bring about change. And it, was, it did not start from the parliamentary process. It started from his revelation of who God is and what God wanted to do in people's lives. And it's all because if there was no Luther, can we say that Wesley would have had that experience? If there was no Protestant Reformation, we wouldn't be sitting here. We might still be sitting here, but who knows what kind of service plan we would have. God knows all things. Prophets were voices of reform. Here's what I want to take you to. And I, I will say I'm trying to preach two messages this morning to make up for last Sunday. I want to take you to Jeremiah. If you'll just turn to Jeremiah, we're going to finish up there. And listen, if you get a little concerned about time, it's okay. My watch isn't working today, so... It's working. But I can't deny the fact that I have a very small gas tank preaching-wise, so I run out of gas at some point. But Jeremiah, prophets were voices of reform. And here's why I want to take you to Jeremiah. First chapter, and I'm just going to summarize up to verse 8. Jeremiah, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and God tells him, before... Your parents conceived you. I had a plan for your life. And that plan is I've appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Isn't it interesting he said to the nations, not just to Israel. What I'm going to give you to say fits everybody. And the first thing Jeremiah did was tell God, he dialed the wrong number. Because he gave like a Moses-like objection. I don't talk very well in public. I haven't taken speech or public speaking. Plus, I'm way too young to do what you're telling me to do. Are you there? Are you following all that? <laughs> and I love how God talks to us sometimes. He basically says, don't say that. Stop saying you're too young. I wouldn't be talking to you if you was too young. Don't say that. And then he says something 
You know, he's, he, he just tries to encourage him that it's okay. Don't worry about it. Because <laughs> I'm going to be the one who gives you the power to speak. And he even said that the Lord touched his mouth. Now, I don't know how that happened, but God somehow showed that he was placing his hand over what he thought was inadequate, and God was going to make it adequate. Verse 8 is interesting to me because if you're probably in the NIV, it says this, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. For I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Is that what it says? You there? You got your Bibles with you this morning? The Bible's kind of important, isn't it? You don't have your Bible with you? Have your Bible with you? <laughs> Who's got a King James? All right. What does it say difference in King James? Verse 8. Don't be afraid of faces. Who has faces? It's panim. It's faces. It's not them. It's not third person pronoun, plural pronoun. It's not them. This is one of those places that they just, they just didn't do what they should have done. King James translates it accurately. He says, don't be, don't be afraid of their faces. You know, when I first went into pastoring, that verse meant something to me. And I tell you, like, don't look at them. Look at the wall. Don't look at the faces. They'll throw you off course. Look over there. I've seen preachers preach, and they preach to the wall the whole time. I know why they're doing that. So they got in heaven like, oh, that's not going over good, so I'll just preach to the wall. Because I can tell you, I've seen people's faces, and, and the one that really kind of distracted me was going. And I was like, oh. And I had someone in the church, first church we passed that would do that. I was like, I preach to the wall. I'm preaching to the wall. I'm preaching over your head. And there's a reason why God said faces. He wasn't talking about people in general. He says, there's going to be people you can tell by their facial expression. They won't like what you're saying. So don't look at them. <laughs> don't be afraid of them. Because I have put in, he showed him two things. He showed him an almond tree branch. And he showed him a boiling pot. This was God confirming. He knew Jeremiah was, was a little hesitant to take this and run with it. So he shows him these things. He reveals to him what they mean. And he tells him that I'm sending you into a great time of need in this, in this nation. And don't worry about it. I'm, gonna, I'm going to give you the impetus. And it's how he ends this chapter that's really neat. Because God is talking to him. And he gets to the point where he just doesn't give, I guess, Jeremiah an opportunity to say, but I can't do that. He just, like, would talk, go on. And in verse 16, he says this to him. I will pronounce my judgments on my people. And here's, here's when he says, reform from what? What was Jeremiah going to be a preacher of reformation about? God is about to tell him the diagnosis of the country. And that his message was going to be directed specifically to that diagnosis. It's in verse 16. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness and forsaking me and burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. 
Then he talks to him. I love this. Get yourself ready. (laughs) I love to see that in the message. Probably somebody has that. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. (laughs) You think they're scary? (laughs) I can scare you, buddy. Today I've made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and people. He's telling them, you're going to be my face. I'm going to stand against them through you, son. They will fight against you. They will not overcome you. For I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. I think after that, And after seeing the almond tree branch and the boiling pot and all that, I think Jeremiah, if he didn't say it, he whispered it. Okay, let's do this. I think I'm ready. That's the problem. In chapter 3, I love Jeremiah because, you know, I, I just, you can almost feel sorry for Jeremiah because God chose him and he knew that everybody's gonna kind of say to him, We don't like you. We don't like your preaching. You're always talking about bad things. Can't you just, like, make us feel better? We're tired of you. I keep pointing out what we're doing wrong. Come on, how about some affirmation here, buddy? And God, God called him knowing that the, almost the whole country and he even had other preachers following around says, he's not preaching the truth. We're preaching the truth. We're going to overcome our enemy. Don't believe a word he says, nothing he says. Not only does he have to confront the people, he's got other preachers down in him. And so God calls him knowing that. And, and he gives, he just lays it out. He, he gives this biographical backdrop to, him, to himself. But chapter 3, I'm not going to read all of chapter 3, but it's a a chapter worth reading because again and again and again, God says to the people that he sends them to turn, turn back to me. What did God, how did God look at Judah? You're about to see in the early verses. I will read the first few verses of chapter 3. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, Should he return to her again, would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now come back to me, says the Lord? He's accusing Judah of spiritual infidelity. He said, as bad as it would be for a woman to have another husband and come back to her previous husband and that that arrangement would be okay, would not the whole land be defiled? He says, and that's what you're expecting from me, that you can go out and embrace all these other gods and want to come back to me and act like everything's okay? Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, set like a, a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, no spring rains will fall, yet you have had the brazen look of a prostitute you refuse to blush with shame. That's the nation that, that Jeremiah was told, 
You go preach that to them. You go tell them that they're acting like a prostitute with me. In verse 8, he says, I gave faithless Israel. Now, let me make a distinction here. Just hang in here with me. Israel and Judah were two different nations at this point. Israel was the ten nations that separated themselves from Judah and Benjamin when Solomon's son Rehoboam became king and there was a schism in the country. Rehoboam only had Judah and Benjamin left and the other ten tribes broke apart and they became more idolatrous than Judah. And at the point that Jeremiah was writing this, Israel had already been taken captive by Assyria. They'd already been overwhelmed by Assyrian forces. And Assyria tried to take over Judah, but God protected Judah. But he said when Israel was taken captive by Assyria, he he likened it that God had given her a certificate of divorce, sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister, Judah, had no fear. Judah watched that happen and watched and ought to know why it happened. But she also went out and committed adultery. Judah saw what happened to Israel, and she kept on doing the same thing. Isn't it interesting when we see people committing the same sins of their parents? And we might say, oh, that's a generational curse. I've seen people that came out of horrible families. They didn't repeat that. Sometimes we kind of make an excuse. God didn't excuse Judah, did he? No. He says, you, you saw what's happened, embracing false gods, and God, and it's this, this culture of inclusion that pulls the people of God into a movement that's away from God. We got to be careful with the spirit of inclusion. You know that God loves all people. That doesn't mean God approves of all people. God loves all genders, both of them. God's love doesn't approve somebody who's convoluted in that. God loves truth when it's in place in people's lives. He loves people when truth isn't in their life, but he doesn't approve of it. And approving and love are not synonymous and they're not equal. God's love calls. You know why he sent Jeremiah to Judah? Because he loved Judah. He raised up a man knowing, and he says, you know, don't be afraid of them. And yes, they will come after you to destroy you, but I won't let it happen. I'll protect you. And he had some hard days ahead of him. I want to take you to the verse 20, and I'll finish with this, and if the praise team can come up. Man, we have enough time to have another service. Chapter 3 concludes with this. Listen to me. Because some of this could apply to us about allowing things to encroach into our lives that's not of God. Ideas, thoughts. Verse 20, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights. 
the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, verse 22. It's kind of like you could put in repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Return, faithless people, and I will cure you of backsliding. Yes, this, this is the people's response. This is what I want you to see. The, the, the quotation applies not to God, but now to the people. And the people's response is the rest of this chapter. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. It's almost as though God is saying, this is the correct response. This is what I want you to do when I talk to you about your unfaithfulness, about your spiritual adultery, your infidelity. You're expecting me to love you while you have other lovers, lovers that are away from me. And he's expecting them to say this. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. Wake up. This is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our ancestors' labor, their flocks, their herds, their sons, their daughters. We've seen the cost of spiritual debauchery. We've seen it. Let us lie down in our shame and let, us disgrace, and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our ancestors. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. You know what God wanted from them? His honesty. If you're not doing good, just tell him. He already knows you're not doing good. But you, he, what he wants from us is honesty. He wants us to be real about where we're at. And if you've reached perfection, you come and tell me so that you can give me some pointers. But otherwise, it means that we have space to grow. We have space to increase. We have space to repent. We have space to get our lives in order. We have space to let God be our sole lover and not share our hearts, our lives, our bodies, our emotions with another entity other than God. So can we be honest about ourselves? Will we be at least the cry heard on the barren heights? Isn't that interesting? Can we even break for what we see around us and weep and say, God, save our generation? Save this all-inclusive culture, Lord. Penetrate the darkness that we see around us. Bring renewal. You know what? If we embrace that, Martin Luther can still in heaven believe that what he took a risk doing is still bringing results. Would you stand with us? I thought about we wouldn't be sitting in this building today if it wasn't for Charles Norton who took a tent to Northington and established First Assembly of God of Tuscaloosa. We wouldn't be sitting in this building if it wasn't for Robert and Ann Spence having faith to believe that out in a cotton field or whatever was planted out here, that a church needed to be on a two-lane road way outside of town. How about that? 
What does God have ahead for us? Are you ready to see? By saying, Lord, Lord, do we need to say to you today we have been sorely distracted? Distracted by news, distracted by our interests, our plans, our motivations. We need to see, is this what you want? Is this what you want from me? And if it is, Lord, that we would give it our all. Truly, we want you to be the king in our hearts. Not externally, but internally. So today, I want to thank you for those who followed Martin Luther, for those who took great steps 